Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I do thank you for joining us here on the program. We come your way every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. And we podcast the programs at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. If you like what we're doing, if you like the direction this program is going, we're trying to share with you ideas and new ways of living. And you'd like to support the work that we're doing, we have a PayPal and Patreon account that we would love for you to support us with financially if you can do so. We understand in these times it's very difficult to do, but whatever you can send us would be gratefully appreciated. And we have a PayPal and Patreon accounts on the homepage as well as on the missions page of richarddugan.com. And when you go to SoundCloud, you will also see a uh, uh, support button. It's blue. And you'll see it there on uh, SoundCloud when you go to richarddugan.com. And uh, we thank you for uh, supporting us if you've already supported us. And if you are going to support us, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll take energetic support as well. We also encourage you to go to our guest's website where you can get more information, continue your evolutionary process, and we encourage you to do just that. And our guest's website will be giving you that in just a couple of moments here on Tell Me Your Story. We are going to start out our program by talking once again with the creator of the Freedom Formula, the Maui uh, Mastermind as well. And we're going to be talking with our very special guest at this particular time in our uh, our present. I'm not. We're not in our history. This is not part of our history. It will be, but it isn't right now. And we're going to talk with David Finkel, uh, who is uh, the CEO of the of Maui Mastermind. It's one of the world's premier business coaching companies with thousands of clients worldwide. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation, Richard. Uh, you and I both know what's going on. Not just here in California, not just uh, in a few states, the entire country, matter of fact, the entire globe. A hundred and the last I heard, 184 out of 195 countries. Did you know that there was a grand total of 195 countries on the planet? I had to look it up. (laughs) (laughs) And we're all basically faced with the same issues right now, which is really fascinating because it, it shows just how, A, connected we are, and B, how we can affect the lives of other people in some great ways and some not so great ways. Uh, I am fortunate, David, I'm still working. My wife, however, working in the medical field and in her upper 60s has been furloughed. And if I understand the definition of the word furlough, it means that her job will still be there when all of this is over, as opposed to being laid off or or let go. One of the two, one of the three there. This is a very, to say the very least, I would think you would agree, a very unusual time, both socially as well as economically. And I've heard this said many, many times long before any of this stuff happened. You know, uh, what was it? I think it was the phrase in the in the 1980s uh, presidential campaign. uh, It's the economy, stupid. And I sit there and I hear that and I see what's going on. And yes, you and I both need money to keep things moving in our households. But it disturbs me that we're more focused on 
the economy than we are on these human lives that are impacted yeah. right now. Yeah. Talk to me about how you, with all of the work that you have done in that regard, how do you, well, what's your observation of what's going on globally? It's a great question. So I'm going to come at it from this frame. So my, my perspective, I think I've got a pretty unique place of looking at it. So we work with you know, hundreds and hundreds of businesses intimately across the United States and North America. So that's primarily where we work. And so we're at that center point, that nexus, and we're hearing from all these different clients the things that are working, the things that aren't working for them, how it's impacting them and their business. And our companies that we coach tend to be small and mid-sized companies. So I come from that frame of reference. And so first of all, you know, there is an element of there are people who are, and, and it's stirred by the media, which I understand why, some done responsibly, some done less responsibly, but the, the, the sense of the sky is falling. And, and here's what I would tell you. When I look at our clients, which I think are a pretty darn good index, a good uh, micro cross-section of the economy as a whole. We've got businesses in pretty much every type of industry, geographic area of North America. So I can't speak for Europe and Asia, can't speak for South America, but for North America, I'm pretty confident what I'm going to share. So we can tell you that probably for the upper fifth of our clients, 20%, that this is a boon time for them. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, things are hopping. They're just trying to keep pace. And the challenge for them is, how do I get the right workers? How do I get the right supplies? How do I get the materials that I need? We have some disruptions we're having to work around with you know, our, our normal vendors or supply chains. But for them, this is actually a time of plenty. Then there's probably about 40% of our clients that are, that are really impacted slightly one way or the other. I mean, yes, there are things that are having to make real adjustments. I got off the phone earlier today with a client who has a, a wholesale business that works, believe it or not, supplying parts for the airline industry, which you would think would be hard hit. But because of who they work with, oftentimes they're working with military and or with um, cargo passenger planes, car cargo planes versus passenger. They're impacted, but not nearly that great. It's It's kind of more of a I just have to make adjustments. I've sent all my people to work remotely. We're not set up to do that. How do we scramble to do that? There's uh, the second tier on the lower end, that, that bottom, second to the, from the bottom 20%, that this is a major deal with their business. They're going to deal with it. They're going to be okay. But the next 6, 12, 24 months, they're going to feel it in a big way. And then the bottom 20%, this is an existential crisis for their business. Now, Notice I say for their business, not for them as individuals. And I think that that's important. Um, so here's what we're telling our clients. And I think this would be important if you're, whether you, you have a business or you're leading a team inside of a larger company or organization, number one, the most important role that you play right now is you've got to reduce what we call FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Your people, you don't have to have all the answers. You just need to make sure your people know that together you're gonna to find your way through it. Different things are gonna to come to light week by week. We're gonna play it by ear, but we're gonna get through this. We're gonna be transparent and sharing information. And this is a time with my staff, what I do and what I encourage our coaching clients to do is to over-communicate internally. And I'll use the word over-communicate, Richard, with quotation marks. This is not the time to think, well, I said it once, I reassured them once, mm -hmm. that's all they need. No, you need to bring this up in conversation and. I've got clients who are doing things like 
sending out company-wide email that says, you know, here's what's going on, the quick bullets every two, three days. I've got other clients who are making sure that they're having weekly check-ins with certain people where in the past they might have gone a month for talking with some of these people. Um, I've got another client who runs a manufacturing business. My advice for him was, you know, keeping proper social distancing, right? But get out there on your floor and talk with the people out there. What's going on in their world? They just need to see you. This is a time right now that we need to reduce FUD factor so that we can have the best of us show up to deal with what we're dealing with, regardless of which of those percentages your current employer or company falls into. And I also know, too, <clears throat> that that staying in communication with your staff, your employees, if you do have a business, um, can go a long way as far as, if nothing more, morale. Even though you may not be able to pay them anything because you don't have any work for them to do, so it's kind of tough to do, that psychological support can really go a long way. And I know that you you deal with that, especially in your book, The Freedom Formula, How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family, Your Health, or Life. And obviously, right now, we do not want to sacrifice our health. I have to be very careful because my wife has pre-existing conditions. And the last thing I want to do is come in contact with somebody who uh, I may contract this from and then take it home, which I know a lot of the the medical workers are concerned about, first responders Absolutely. and so forth. <clears throat> so, the, you know, fortunately, we made, a, a, a I think now it was a prudent purchase of a travel trailer, and it's all hooked up as if we were camping outside the house. So if I actually had to, I'd come home, get out of the truck, go into the trailer, disrobe, jump in the shower, uh, get another set of clothes out of the cupboard in there, and then take the clothes and go and put them in the wash. And, and hopefully that will, you know, minimize the possibilities of me, you know, taking that into the house and taking it to her. And now we're hearing that it can be actually transmitted now to animals. And we've got five cats and a dog that live in the house. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, my God. You know, so I have uh, uh, quite a heavy responsibility right now if, from that standpoint. And at the same time, <clears throat> I feel it extremely important that I also continue to to do what I'm doing at the radio station to try to keep people informed, uh, educated about what's really going on. And I think one of the hardest things, David, for us is the fact that the information that we are getting is is it's it's changing from day to day, not because people are playing political games with it, which unfortunately they are also. But literally because the information changes from day to day because we're just we're still learning about all of this. This is literally, literally the first time in our history, yours and mine, that we have had to deal with this and, and new rules have to be created. Well, Richard, I'm going to challenge that a little bit. And this is what I love about healthy conversation, because we can sharpen each other's thinking and come out better for it. Absolutely. Um, I, I believe strongly that this is the first time in your lifetime and my lifetime we've had to deal with this, but but this is not the first time. Pandemics are things that have happened before, and, and there's an interesting book right now. I, I would encourage people if they want to get get a hold of it. But oh gosh, it's uh, the 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 influence epidemic of, of 1918, and and there's some interesting things about that. Plus, we do have the ability to have a Ford time machine that is two weeks to to maybe six weeks ahead of us. 
and in the news, what I'm paying a lot of attention to, and I would encourage any of your listeners to look at, what's going on in these other countries that are a bit ahead of us? It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it is helpful to see because we get to look at decisions that other countries have made. For example, um, decisions that were made in Spain to not take certain things seriously around social distancing and what that curve looked like there to the opposite extreme with some of the countries in Asia that are perhaps a little bit more um, authoritarian that allow them to do certain things and and what some of the other countries in Europe have done. That's been really interesting to, to be able to take a look at that. That's not perfect mm-hmm. because we don't know that we can trust all the information coming out of there, but it it is useful. The other one about, uh, about it is there was a really interesting article in the New York Times. I read it three days ago. Um, and it talked about comparing um, communities inside the United States uh, back around the, between 19, eight, uh, 1919, so right after the great flu epidemic there, influenza epidemic, through the next five years. And it looked at the economic recoveries. And it basically what it did was it put, picked sister cities, cities, cities that were geographically, culturally, and economically very similar in pairs. And what it looked at was how did these pairs deal with social distancing? How seriously did they take um, the preventative measures? And what they found was those uh, cities or communities that took it really seriously, it did, and they did it longer. They extended that, and they really were much more um, specific about it. They had a much greater and faster upswing on the other side over the next four or five years economically. So I would encourage, you know, from that part, I think there is some precedence that we can look at. Mm-hmm. I do recognize we live in a different world. We are so much more connected with air travel and other types of commerce than, than we were 100 years ago. I mean, absolutely would agree with that. Uh, one but thing, I think there are some parallels. I, I, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. One of the things that I have advocated for probably 40 years or so, <clears throat> of course, they've never done it until, <laughs> until now, until now. Uh, every time we get the influenza, the flu, that starts to circle the globe. And, of course, it gets gets to the United States somewhere in late November, early December. It goes through January, February, March, and then starts to taper off in April. And, right. and then we're kind of through it. But during that time, a number of people end up taking off because they're sick. And some don't. And they spread it around the office. They spread it around the factory. And those people go home sick. And I know that there are statistics of the loss of productivity in dollars because people do not stay away from work. Or I, I heard it said that the schools shouldn't be closed. You know, it'll be fine for the kids. What do you think some of these things really get spread in the schools right. by the kids? <laughs> and so one of the things I have advocated for decades, take two weeks that's, I think that's all you need. Two weeks, not with the co- co- coronavirus. I'm talking about the, the influenza that circles the globe. Shut down the airlines for two weeks. Don't let anybody move from one part of the world to the other. Let them deal with and get through in the five to seven days needed for that particular influenza to work its way through. And then guess what? We're done. We're done for the year. And yet, we sh- we haven't actually shut the airlines down. They are still flying, but some of these planes are flying empty. They're flying empty. And I know why they're doing that. There's, there's a logical reason for them to do that. But that aside, I find it interesting. 
uh, how how much pushback is also getting uh, getting put uh, on the measures that we are taking uh, of social distancing. I, I heard one guy say, well, why can't we social distance at work? Because some workplaces aren't conducive to social distancing. It doesn't work. And unfortunately, you're hearing reports now of uh, grocery store employees who are, are testing positive in spite of the fact that they've instituted social distancing and all those kinds of things. In any event, uh, it just seems to me, David, that that, yes, we do have a precedent. But at the same time, it seems like it it is finally come to the point where we're starting to look at new ways of dealing with this kind of a scenario. But from my perspective, and, and I realize we're in the 21st century, it's the digital age. I get that, that I've, I've read this headline over and over again, that it's a, a, a data-driven pandemic. Data-driven. Not that it's spreading because of the data, but because instead of the human factor, they're just looking at the numbers and they're, they're looking at how we can minimize the numbers. And just, it's like, wait a minute, these are human beings. And I think that's, that's kind of what's disturbing. And then, of course, more people are concerned about the economy and getting it rolling again than they are about keeping people from getting sick and yeah. dying. I mean, you say something really interesting there before about the economy part. Look, look, I can't speak to the the closure of an airline for a week or two or three or for more. That that's well outside my purview. However, I, I think one more place that we can kind of get get a real insight that we can be economically smart, whether we're an employee in a larger institution or we're a, an entrepreneur or we're a business person who runs a a, a company. What one thing we can look at, and I think this is really important, is there are certain trends right now that have been going for a while that this is basically poured gasoline on. And here's an example of one. Um, for the last 15 years, um, there's been a trend to more remote working, working from home, working remotely. And that growth has been in the in the double digits per year. Well, that growth right now obviously is not even in the triple digits. It just went straight through the roof in terms of the numbers. And you're seeing a massive increase with it. Now, some of it, I'm sure that when we're able to go back to offices, that will happen. But what you're finding, though, that was an existing trend. This has accelerated it. I think what you'll find is that more working remotely will be the case. And so, for example, I know with our coaching clients, a lot of them were not set up to know how do you effectively manage and or run a remote company? How do you run a, a multi-million dollar business remotely or a multi-billion dollar business remotely? And, and so I know one of the things that we've looked into doing is sharing what we've done on that. For example, we've, we've built our company for over a decade working remotely. We have people in 12 different states that work with us um, and we found certain things do and don't work. That's one trend. Another trend, Richard, I think that people should look at. I think that you're going to find that right now um, they call it telemedicine, which just the very nature of calling it that shows how archaic it is mm-hmm. because it's not telephone based, but it can be, but it could also be video based or web based. But what you're finding is that um, because of the economics from it, the way a lot of our clients are small to mid-sized medical groups, whether they be one practice or or 12 or 20 different locations. But what they're finding is because all the insurers take their lead from Medicare, uh, Medicare and how they do reimbursements. It used to be the case that two months ago, if I were a medical group, 
and I saw somebody remotely and not in an office visit, I would bill for one unit of value versus three units of value, depending what that was. Mm -hmm. They're letting them now bill for all full three. And I think what you're going to find is that we will revert backwards, but we won't go all the way back. I think what you're going to find is that we're, we're getting probably a, a 10-year boost into what's going to be happening on this remote medicine side for better and for worse. I'm sure there'll mm -hmm. be a lot of learning. So I guess what I would tell people here is, you know, when you look at the opportunities for yourself economically, and again, I, I come at it from the very micro perspective simply because I, I work with individuals uh, as opposed to great nameless institutions. And I think we can look for in our in our niche of the world, what are the changes that this pandemic is actually pouring fuel on to, to accelerate those trends, especially the trends that were already in process? There was just a lot of resistance to it in the past. Well, this is just blowing through a lot of the resistance. Again, some of these trends you might like, some you might not like, but the trends still are what they are. Absolutely. Now, a lot of changes came about in 2008, 2009, following that whole economic. Now, that was all economics. There was no pandemic surrounding that. You might call it an economic pandemic, I suppose, <laughs> of, of a sort. But a lot of changes came about, not just in regulations and so forth, but in terms of people uh, coming to grips with the loss of the job first. And, and I have to tell you that emotions run high, even if you're furloughed. How could you choose me? And why didn't you do? And, and on and on and on. And then, of course, things settle down and then you go, OK, so what do I do now? What am I going to do until uh, I get to come back, until I get to come back to the job? Or do I even want to go back? Maybe I want to think about doing something else. Hmm. And I feel that's what happened in 2008, 2009. And I honestly do believe that if people uh, were to pick up the Freedom Formula, a copy of it, <clears throat> that might assist them in that process of determining, uh, I didn't hate my job and my boss and my coworkers, but I need to find something that I really, really want to do. If, if, if that wasn't it, in spite of the great workplace, then what is it? And I know that that's going to be something people are going to look at now. Once we're able to get out and move about and, and have, have some level of contact with one another, um, that I think that, that the, the current economic model is going to, it's either going to change or be replaced by something that's going to be more sustainable, not in terms of necessarily, uh, 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 okay, well, what happens if another pandemic happens, you know? I suppose that could be factored in, but, you know, they, I keep hearing this phrase from the administration. This, you know, this country wasn't designed, this economy wasn't designed to stop. Well, guess what? It has. <laughs> I mean, to a greater, greater or lesser degree, it has stopped. Um, and yet people are still doing stuff. I mean, I'm seeing incredible videos, I'm sure you are too, of people who are coming up with some incredible entrepreneurial ways that uh, just uh, it's like until you reached this point, that idea didn't come to the surface. What are your yeah. thoughts in that regard when we have things like this happen uh, that impact our lives uh, communally, nationally or globally? D do you see uh, that that these kinds of things are I mean, it's not that we want them to happen, but boy, 
if we could just look at them as opportunities, it would be so much easier to make the transition. You know, no one, no one would have wished this on on any person, country, world. Of course not. But we talk with our clients that are running companies and they're having to make decisions that are affecting lots of lives. And we say, look, you, you can't control what is out there in the environment, but you do have control over saying, what are the opportunities for your business? And there are a lot of them. I mean, for example, I'll give just three quickies right now. You know, a client I talked with two days ago, um, they are a manufacturer and they've needed to find a great firmware software designer or programmer. And that's a really hard specialty to find that person. Well, he's like, you know, hey, I'm going to get my recruiter out right now. There are people who are available or open to looking at that. Second opportunity that I heard from it, which was there's a, another company I was talking with just recently. Well, in their world, a lot of undercutting is going on in terms of pricing because companies are desperate to make some sales to get some cash flow in their niche. And his strategy is to, we call it the show your true color strategy, which is he goes back to his marketplace and describes this. Look, we hope that we believe in times of crisis, people show their real true colors. And we hope what you'll see from us is that the same behavior that we've always had is consistent across. You won't see us discounting things by 50% because you know that we've been selling it to you at the, at the absolute best price we're capable of doing it to you before. That if someone now is giving you a price that used to be 100,000, now they're saying this part is $50,000. What they're really saying is I was gouging you before, but hey, now I'll go ahead and sell it to you at a better price. And that's been working really well for him. So for, for him, for relationships, and I'll give one more opportunity here. One of our clients did have to furlough, lay off people temporarily. But what he did different than a lot of his competitors that were out there, he went and had an honest conversation with his people. He helped them fill out. He took hours and hours of time helping them fill out their, this, the, the, the unemployment insurance paperwork, mm -hmm. gave them his cell phone. Hey, if they need a call to verify any of this information, he went above and beyond Richard. Yeah. And he's giving them updates on a weekly basis about what's going on just to be respectful of that. And you better believe that that is, that is noticed by his people. Anyone who worked for him wants to come back to him. They understand that if he's got no revenue right now, he can't have them there. Um, and especially there's some new, you know, the, the payroll protection program has allowed him to, to lay some of these people off, knowing that if he does get that funding, he'll be able to bring them back on mm -hmm. um, very quickly from that period. So I guess what I look at is there, there are opportunities. And for an individual, you know, go back to the freedom formula. The first half of the book talks about how do you create more value in less time as a team member, as an individual. The second half is how do you get your company or your department to do that? Well, for those people who say, well, why was I furloughed? I, I'm going to say something that's really important here with that. In some ways, it's completely out of your control. Absolutely. In other ways, it's not completely out of your control. And it, the, the decision in, in some instances, when you have multiple people who play the same function, there are companies that will play it politically. And that's horrible. I'm sorry to say that. But most well-run companies are going to make the decision based off of you know, who really is creating more value with that. And so learning to, to be irreplaceable is not about I'm the only one who can do it, but I stand out by creating more value in mm. what I do mm. in the same amount of time as somebody else. And, and again, I know that that does not change the desperation and or significance of somebody who was furloughed and how that goes. And, 
in many ways it's out of their control because yeah. it's the other prize enterprise but if i look at it and it's why is it me versus one of these other four people who played the same role and they kept two of them i did have some influence with that and i can take some ownership there sure and i will say that uh, for example in my wife's case i i tried to help her uh, I, I actually didn't do anything when she was really upset initially, when she had that initial upset. I let her I let her have that. I let her feel that. You've she, been married for a while. That's a smart man. <laughs> okay. But then the next couple of days later, I said, you know, you might want to try looking at it from a couple of other different perspectives. Number one, remember, <clears throat> and this is Sansom Clinic here out on the on the West Coast, and they they're down by 50 percent as far as income, even though they're nonprofit. Uh, so they needed to furlough, and that was the word they used, furlough, not layoff, but furlough 50% of their employees. Well, from a strictly economic standpoint, who are you going to furlough? You're going to furlough the people who've been there the longest, who have the larger salaries or hourly rates, so that you can cut the cut the budget uh, a lot quicker. But then the other part of it, too, is she's in her upper 60s. She's in that critical range. Yeah. So they also, I said, so you can also look at it from the standpoint that they are trying to keep you safe because you are a valued employee. I mean, she's been there 14 years uh, wow. and, and so forth. And she was, she was even there prior back in the, uh, in the 80s. She was there for 10 or 15 years. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, if you look at it from those two perspectives, it makes perfect sense. And it's not over and we're not over. And we're still here. And that's another thing that I like to to point out to people. I don't know if this is even part of your coaching. But if you've gone through financial struggles for over the years and you're still here, guess what? You didn't die. You thought you were going to. No matter how bad it got, you made it through. And here you are today uh, in 2020, which, by the way, we are promoting as the year of perfect vision. We are encouraging people to spend time. They've got the time now, many of them do, to spend time just being by themselves and going within and getting in touch with their intuition, that still small voice, and begin the process of doing some self-evaluation as to where you want to go next. And um, so I think that that unlike 2008-2009, this is affording the general public globally, not just nationally, to do that very thing, to really evaluate. And I'd like to come back from the break here. I want to talk about the Malibu Mastermind. I want to find out more about that business coaching for growth and freedom. And we'll talk about that when we come back with our special guest, David Finkel. And we're uh, talking, of course, not just about uh, the the economic situation that we're in, but the one we want to be in. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. It's the Freedom Formula. That's the title of the book, and it is about how to succeed in business without sacrificing your family, health, or life. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, and we'll be right back. Tell me your stories. I'll do my best to understand you. And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm here with uh, David Finkel. He is the uh, CEO of Master of Maui Mastermind. 
I think I said Malibu Mastermind. It's Maui Mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> it's a business coaching for growth and freedom. Um, it's uh, it is the nation's premier business coaching company, helping businesses successfully scale their companies. Now, when you say scale, uh, it could be up or down. It's not necessarily scaling down. It could be how can I build a, a bigger, more successful company, not just for myself? And I'm wondering if this is also part of the coaching process, but also for the people who are actually making the money for this company, my workers, my employers, hopefully they see them as my business family. Yeah, very great question. In our world, scaling definitely means growth and growth of both top of line and of profitability. That's that's why clients come to us. However, I think what you, you make a good point there, which is this is a moment in time that we can be very intentional about what is it that we value and how do we want to create, whether it be what do we want our business to be or what do we want our lives to be. And I, I see with a lot of our clients right now that are running companies or key employees that are running those businesses that there have been a lot of changes that People are now finally open to, to, to doing that. One of the side benefits, and no one would want it to be this way, but if we're going to have to have a pandemic, let's get something good out of it. Right now, people are much more open to change. There's usually a, a real inertia or resistance to change. Mm-hmm. But when people see change is important for the, the, uh, uh, an enterprise's success, and they realize that that enterprise's success is something that's vital for them and their family and their lives they're much more open to changing their behaviors. And a lot of behaviors are being shifted right now. And I'll give an example. You know, one of the medical groups that we work with right now, they for a long time have, have wanted to improve and cons- make consistent across the, what, 21, 22 different clinic locations they have to make them consistent. They had bought one group then another medical group then another medical group and everyone was doing it differently. Well, finally, they have a, a, their staff get that this is a great time for them to standardize, to take the best practices across the way. Or for an individual, this is a great time for me to ask the question, is, is what I'm doing what I want to be doing? Is this, is this the career I want? Is this the business that I want? How would I want to make adjustments for this? And one adjustment I think I would encourage everybody, and if you're looking for the how, I would, I would put forward the Freedom Formulas, the book to show you how, which is, Getting out of that rut, which it used to be that, hey, the way I'm going to be successful in business is I'm just going to gut out more hours. I'm going to work 12, 14, 16-hour days. I'm going to work on the weekends. And, and what has happened, I see this with businesses, is that they've burned out their best people and they've made their business more fragile because they don't have any real depth because of how they've gone about it. This is a time for companies, for teams, for departments, or for individuals to change that. I really believe that. Well, I know that um, one of the challenges or struggles that I had uh, very early on when I first started working, I started taking a look at the, the, the wage economic model. Yeah. And as soon as I looked at it, I said, this is not sustainable. This is something that it, it can't last. And this is the way I was looking at it. And, this, and we're going back now to the, the mid-late 70s. I was in high school. I was a paper boy delivering papers. So mine was based upon uh, uh, sales, obviously. But I started taking a look at uh, all these jobs where people worked for an X, X uh, hourly rate. And I thought, okay, so um, let's say I want to stay someplace for 10 or 15 years. My One of my first radio jobs I was at for 15 years. 
And when I started in 1981, I was making then the minimum wage of $3.65 an hour. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Not much, but especially by today's standards, by the same token, by percentage, uh, by percentages, it's uh, not that far off from today's standard. Mean, be that as it may, um, and I thought, okay, so if I stay here 15 years, every year or so, I'm I'm going to want a little bump up. You know, I'd like to have a little more. You know, I'm I'm a good worker. I I contribute. I produce, and so on and so forth. So I'd like to get a little bit more. And 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 I will tell you that at the end of 15 years, I had amassed an hourly rate. Of $7.35 an hour after 15 years. Now, now what if, what if I, had, uh, I had gotten a regular bump up? And I did not. I did not get an annual or semi-annual uh, bump up. Uh, it was very rare. And I don't even know if I had health benefits or not. I can't even remember if I had health benefits. All I knew was that if there were people who were staying at jobs, and that's the way it was, for a long, long time up until maybe the 80s, early 90s, where you were at a job for 20, 30, 40, 50 years maybe. Yeah. And you would expect to get a bump up. Well, the my scenario, as I painted it, was this. All right, so uh, every so often I'm going to get a little bump up. I'm going to get an increase. Well, how's the employer going to cover that increase? He's going to have to raise the price of either lower his profit margin or raise the price of his product or service. All right. So that means that the buying power of the public has just gone down because this guy's price had just went up. So they now have to go to their employer. And then, of course, a few years later, I go through the same thing and we keep doing this and we keep doing this and we keep doing this until the price of the product or service is so out of this world ridiculous and my income is is up there that the boss just cannot maintain it and he's got I can't keep you I can't afford you and so I try going somewhere else to try to get at least a lateral salary or wage and and then the cycle starts all over again uh, and and uh, to me, maybe maybe that has changed because people have become more entrepreneurial. Uh, they don't necessarily have a staff of employees. Maybe they do. They started their own business doing something they really enjoyed, and 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 the money's there, and so they're able to do that. I, I again, I don't know the dynamics because it's not my area of expertise. I'm curious from your perspective. What are your thoughts about? The uh, the old paradigm, business paradigm that I just described versus where we are in the 21st century pre-COVID virus. That's right. Well, I'll come at it slightly differently, Richard, but but from the same theme way. So I, I look at the world as there's two economies, and, 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 and these are models of how we create value. The first is what I call the time and effort economy. And in the time and effort economy, we get paid for time, for for blood, sweat, and tears, for hours and effort. Now, in the time and effort economy, I show up and that's what I'm getting paid to do. But that's really a name because all of us actually live in that second economy, which I call the value economy. Ultimately, we don't get paid for hours and effort. Ultimately, we get paid for what's the value economically of the work that we're doing. And when we recognize that as a starting point, then there's a whole host of other changes that cascade from that, that if we're smart, we do things differently. For example, if I'm running a team and I'm getting measured as a manager of a team based on the production of my people, is it more important for my people to be responsive to me 
or for them to spend their best attention and their best talent doing those things that create the most value. And I, I can't tell you the number of people I come across in larger enterprises, especially because they, they're able to sustain um, these inefficiencies better than small enterprise just runs better, in my opinion. I, I'm biased that way. Um, I've worked with billion dollar companies coaching them, and I've worked with million dollar companies coaching them. And generally speaking, um, I see more inefficiencies in those billion dollars. Like, for example, for the Freedom Formula, one of the research groups that I work with, I, I was coaching um, the head of, of sales for North America for a Fortune 50 company. And the inefficiencies I saw that were just part of their culture that this guy had no control over were just shocking, horrifying. Um, I don't know how this company has lasted the last hundred years, but they have. And clearly they've done other things to offset those inefficiencies. But when I go back to this idea that I'm creating value versus creating just hours, I look at my team and say, well, what should they be doing? Do I, do I get mad at my team? for not responding to an email from me for half an hour or an hour, even though what I didn't realize is by getting them to respond, what I've done is I've trained them to drop everything, to take my call, to take my email, even if they were doing something that was the most value pr producing thing they could have done. If it was an engineer, she's working in a, in a, on a particular tricky piece of code. If it was a salesperson, he was, uh, prospecting and spending time making outbound phone calls to generate more business. I have to be careful about that. And I still see it, Richard, even in my own company sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I One of our account managers, Maggie, called me on this in a, in a really tactful way. So her job is to, her role in the company is to work with our clients, helping to make sure they're getting great results, great inter interactions with our coaches. And I sent her an audio message. And then she came back to me and said, Dave, just you, you, you've sent me a couple messages this week. How do you want me to handle that? Are you expecting me to drop everything to take that message right there and then? And I'm like, heavens no. When I send you that, you know, if I, if I think it's really that mission critical, what's agree that I'll give you a call or a text separate from that? Or if I call you and you're busy, let it go to voicemail. But if I call you right back a second time, then you'll pick up if at all possible. We, we basically figured out a mechanism for those emergencies, which in our world happened probably once every every six months. There's not a lot of emergencies in my world. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it allows her not to feel like she has to interrupt her best work with my demands as her leader, as her manager. She can put her best attention on her highest value producing activities. So kind of going back here to these models, the old model was if I show up and put my hours in with a good attitude, that's what I'm getting paid for. I don't believe that was ever truly what you were getting paid for, but you gave the example for you on the radio. Well, mm -hmm. let's take a look at a media personality. Today, a media personality gets paid a certain amount for what he or she can do on air, but they also get paid about a thousand times more if they're able to do their own promotion for what they do. That's why a, a Kevin Hart gets paid as much as he does for a movie, not because he's funny, although he is tremendously funny, but he's a phenomenal promoter. You know, he's built up his Instagram following. He's built up the other people who follow him on Twitter and all these other places so that when Kevin Hart's in a film, that plus the live promotion he can do, he's created more value per unit of time than some other actor or comedian who might be equally funny in their own space. And I just want to kind of point that out. If we can approach things from the fundamental question of what is it that I do in my world that creates the most value? And then how do I make sure I structure my day and my week so that more of my best time and attention 
goes to those activities that create the most value. And it seems obvious, but I have to do that in the face of so many conflicting demands and responsibilities. And, and that was really the impetus, Richard, for why I wrote the Freedom Formula, to, to operationalize how you do that as an individual, how you do that as a company or department or division of a company. How do you balance or separate running a business from the head versus the heart? I, I've often heard criticisms of of people who are running businesses who uh, they they are just overly uh, emo- uh, emotionally driven uh, by the concerns of their employees and so forth. They want to do right by them. They want to ma- and then there are others who are only interested in the bottom line. Yeah. I, I look at it this way. I want to look at it like parenting. Um, so I've got three sons. They're they're beautiful, kind individuals and souls. You know, they're 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 young men right now. They're still very young. And when I look at my sons, I think to myself, I want to be their friend, but that's not what they need me to be. They need me to be their father, their dad. And I value doing those things that are in their best interest above doing those things that might give me their their uh, short term hugs and and love. Oh, daddy, you bought me this or that. Well, same thing as a leader of a business. If I'm purely driven by heart and I make decisions that hurt the business long term, what happens is, is I've actually hurt my people. I've I've broken their heart. On the other hand, if I'm purely just the numbers driven person and have no heart, then I'm going to, to not have any real connection with the other stakeholders in my company, my customers, my suppliers and vendors, uh, my shareholders or people who own, and my employees. I've got to find the right balance. But I think as a business leader, if I don't try to be their friend, but instead try to be someone that they respect um, and make decisions that I think truly do balance the needs of all the stakeholders, that's the best way. And that means sometimes I've got to be rational and I've got to be very much looking at the numbers. For example, if I'm looking at a cash flow analysis, you gave the example of the the hospital system, the medical system out there in California that had 50% decline in revenue. I have to make some tough choices with that. But I want to do that as humanely as possible. I, I always look at it as, how can I put humanity back in the, in the business? And humanity means I care for individuals, but not just for their short term, but over the longer term, I think that's what my real responsibility is to the stakeholders when I run a business. Yeah. I, I, I were watching a movie not too long ago, and the, the guy walks into his boss and asks for an advance. And I'm going, I'm thinking, why why does that not sound, I, I, I know you need the money to fix the water heater or whatever it is he needed it for. But you do realize that if you get the advance now, you won't have it then when <laughs> when, when payday <laughs> comes in. You know, and it's like, there's got to be another way. Uh, for us to get by. And of course, That's many right. of us prior to, you know, pre-COVID uh, virus, COVID-19, uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Well, now we don't have a paycheck to live from too. But uh, certainly there are things, I guess the one thing, the one, one of the other things to look at of, of a positive nature is that for the most part, we are all in the same boat. There isn't anybody in the United States that isn't dealing with this from an economics economic perspective. Every company, every company is dealing with this. 
whether it be the hospitality and restaurant industry or whether it be manufacturing, doesn't matter. Everybody's dealing with it. Every single person in the country. So it's at least the playing field has been sort of leveled to the extent that when I call uh, my uh, creditors, when I call my credit union or I call my credit card company, um, they are already in the mode saying, look, we understand everybody's dealing with this. So here's what we're willing to do for you and everybody else. Bop, 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 bop. Now, some of them are a little bit more compassionate than others because I heard one uh, company, one credit card company actually said, we will defer payments for two or three months or 30 or 60 days, 60 or 90 days. I'm sorry. Another company, and this is very important. I heard this uh, uh, distinction on another program uh, between deferment and, oh, what what is the other one? Where I can't remember the name of the other the other word. Where what well, they waive it? Th- well, well actually, actually, what happens? You don't is owe the money. You don't owe the money for ninety days. However, in the fourth month, you're going to have to pay for the past three months plus month number four. Mm. I, I can't remember the name of, of of what they call that, but be that as it may, those were the two juxtapositions that some people are facing, and you've got to make sure you understand what it is that they. Uh, claim that they are going to do for you so that you don't hurt yourself down the road. Um, you know, and my wife and I, I've gone through this process. I've called all of these places and uh, I've said, uh, you know, considering the circumstances, I kind of even say it this way. What can you do for me? <laughs> you know, Because um, uh, it's like and, and I have to say, too, that um, we rent, but we made the commitment. My wife and I did. That we were going to make sure that if we didn't pay anything else, we were going to pay the rent. Not because of fear of eviction, but more because we have a little different relationship with our landlord than most people do. And we felt that it was a better place to come from to say, look, you know, if I miss a credit card payment this month and next month, all right, I'm going to, you know, they're going to tack that on and we'll deal with that later because that's uh, that's an easier thing to deal with. Whereas she doesn't just have the mortgage to pay. Maybe this money isn't going for that. Maybe it's going for her elderly, elderly mother who is in uh, a, a care facility, you know, and, and it's gotten more expensive and what have you. And as I said, we have a little different relationship with our landlord than most. Uh, so we felt more of a family commitment. Uh, so that's what we've done. Not everybody can do that. Uh, when we are faced with, and as we're coming close to the end of our program here, I'm going to ask this final question. When we are faced with these kinds of dilemmas, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to put it again outside because this is a very strange, unusual, and very unique time that we are, are in right now. But let's say uh, post-COVID, um, when things settle down, the dust settles, and, and we're kind of back into a normal flow— but And somebody gets into a, a financial situation like that, whether it be a company uh, whose maybe their revenue isn't quite up to, up to par or an individual. What is your best advice to someone in that regard so as to use both the head and the heart to deal with their, I call them vendors or creditors, um, in, in terms of, of maybe writing their ship, getting it, getting it back on an even keel, uh, even if it wasn't, it's not going to be this month, it might be six months down the road. 
Give us give us some uh, some uh, advice in that regard, because I know people are going to be facing that in the coming months. Yeah, I'll put it from both perspectives. So whether you're the person who is being owed the money or the person who owes the money, I, I always look at it as twofold. Number one, is the relationship two-way? So for example, if I had a client who came to me and said, look, I need to have some help. How can you help me? And that client is all in with us. You know, they're, they're doing their side of the equation. Am I going to work with them? Of course I am. Let's change that equation. Now let's say they're not all in. They're skimming the surface, just tasting lightly. And it, it feels to me that they're taking advantage of the situation. Well, then I'm not. I'm going to do what I said I would do, but I'm also going to hold them accountable to the commitments that they made. So I think it's a very different way. And I've been the landlord who is owed the money, and I've been the person who's owed the money on both sides over my lifetime. So that's one. Number two, I've learned that it's so easy to separate myself from the pack simply by paying something. So I'll give an example. There's a guy that was a friend of mine who um, had, he and I did a real estate deal together and I let him take the, the, the lion's share of profits for this particular house we bought together. At the time I didn't need the money and he did. And I said, great, you'll, you'll pay it back to me later when we sell the property. And the market shifted under us and the property we sold. We made money on it, but not nearly as much as we thought. This was, we ended up selling it in 2012. So, you know, it took a pretty big hit in value, this, this property in California. Well, he, he came back to me and said, you know what? Let me make payments on this money that I took the difference. Half of that was yours. And he started making $250 a month payments to me for years. I didn't charge him any interest. I just was astounded that he had the honor and the integrity to be making some payment over time. So mm. going back to the situation, if I were someone who owed somebody money, let's say I owed them $20,000, $2,000, can I pay them something? $25 a month, $50 a month. It, it's amazing when somebody sees that you're doing something, mm. what they see is someone who's owned the situation Look, if I can't make the payment, I can't make the payment. Yeah. But I can separate myself out by paying something, $20 a month for heaven's sake. Yeah. And that will stand you away from the 95% who just simply passively throw up their hands and say, it wasn't me, and walk away. And I've watched people I've done that with and people who've done that with me. And I've watched the reaction, the responses. I know how it felt for me. Yeah. This guy came back to me for a loan. And I don't normally make a personal loan to somebody. I, I did. I said, this is yours. Here, here you go. I, not only do I trust the guy, but he reintroduced a certain faith in humanity by just his behavior. It just stood out yeah. over 30 years in business. It just stood out. And it's not that hard to pay something. David Finkel, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I know you have to run, as do I. David Finkel, who is the CEO and founder of Maui mastermind as well as the author of the book i want you to try to get a copy of folks go to freedomtoolkit.com free the freedom formula how to succeed in business without sacrificing your family health or life and david i thank you so much and you know maybe when we get a little further on the other side of this whole thing maybe we can talk about some of the maybe some of the new rules the new ways of doing things uh, that are going i believe are going to come out of this uh and as you i think adequately and quite uh, accurately stated, it's pushed us forward a good 10 years, I think, in, in many areas. And honestly, I, I have been optimistic from almost the very beginning. I just feel like 
The opportunities, that's the key word right now, is there are opportunities in 2020, the year of perfect vision. And I thank you so much for joining with us. Thank you, Richard. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until next time, love to lol.